You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. Welcome. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace radio show and thank you for joining us again today. Through these shows, Linda and I have a goal to share insights and information on trending topics impacting the world of work and careers in the 21st century. And to do that, we invite experts and thought leaders to be our guest. After tuning in, we want you to walk away having learned something new and be better equipped to both future-proof your organization and, as importantly, future-proof your career. This is Morag Barrett, partner at Sky Team and co-author with Dr. Linda Sharkey of The Future Proof Workplace. And this week, Linda and I are excited to have our guest, which is Constance Derricks, author of a new book called High Stakes Leadership. And we are going to be talking with Constance about the research and insights that she uncovered in publishing her new book, High Stakes Leadership, Leading Through Crisis with Courage, Judgment and Fortitude. So Constance, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Appreciate it. So let's get started so our listeners can get used to the different voices and accents on today's conversation. So tell us a little bit um, about yourself. And uh, you have an unusual background, stockbroker to psychologist. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit more about that journey and how that has helped you in the work you do with your clients. Yes, yes. So um, several decades ago, um, I was looking for a job that would be uh, well-paying, a professional job, but I had a challenge because at the time I didn't have a bachelor's degree. And so I uh, went to the library and I looked up careers and I found that stockbrokers made quite a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't, know, I didn't know that much about what they did um, you know, I'd had a brokerage account as a child because my grandfather set it up, but really my perspective was limited. So I went set about to learn how to get a job as a stockbroker. So I interviewed with seven firms that I did not want to go to work for. And I was, I was rejected by all of them. <laughs> so they didn't want you to go and work with them either. So it was a two-way. <laughs> yes, I was zero for seven. So I, uh, but, but I did it deliberately because I was trying to learn what they were looking for. Mm. And I didn't realize it at the time, but only in hindsight, that I was conducting a bit of an experiment. So when I felt ready to have a real interview with a firm that I wanted to work for, I walked through the door at Merrill Lynch and got hired. And uh, I learned, uh, being there several years, that it turns out that people are quite irrational in their decisions about their money. I, I have to confess, I was probably naive. That surprised me. So I began a study of my clients and my colleagues as well. It soon, I soon realized my colleagues weren't much more rational than my clients. And so <laughs> I, I began to study decision-making and the effect of emotion on decision-making, and that launched me into my next career 
but of course, I had to go back to school and, and finish my undergraduate degree. And then I went and got a doctorate in psychology. So now the work I do involves helping senior leaders with decisions that they can't afford to get wrong. So things like, who will our next CEO be? Should we acquire this company? If we do, what do we do with it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and things like that. So it, it's on the face of it, it makes no sense. But when I tell the story, I think it makes more sense. Well, I like the 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 journey because of what I'm finding and Linda and I are finding both with our own careers, we're on our fifth careers each at the moment, that nobody really has a direct line path. It's more of a squiggly line path. And mm-hmm. uh, my expectation in the 21st century is that whole idea of the career ladder, predictable steps that are gradually moving you up and forward, uh, that's a 20th century mindset, that this yes. squiggly line approach to uh, careers and uh, discovering yes. who we are in each chapter of our lives is going to become much more common and more importantly acceptable. In the past, it might have been mislabeled that you're a bit flaky if you're moving from one thing to another. But Mm -hmm. I think that fluidity and agility is going to be important. But Linda, I want to bring you in here. I know your career has moved in many directions. Um, How have you been? I've been really good. Great. Thanks for asking, Morag. Appreciate it. So, um, I don't, I don't, you two are having a great dialogue. I think, you know, I used to work in the brokerage business as well, Constance. So it's interesting that you say that. Oh, funny. Yeah. Yeah. So Linda was at GE Capital. And so when you talk in your no, book. No, actually I was at Payne Weber was what oh, I was. Oh, yeah. Payne Weber. Okay. So you probably know Constance Payne Weber. Yes, from, uh, I do. Pretty well. And it's, it's really interesting. I was talking to another guy the other day, do you, uh, you know, the whole Kidder Peabody situation yes. that, that was really a disaster. Yes. But at any rate, I tell you what got me out of the brokerage business was when I uh, got assigned a broker and this, I was studying to get my, um, uh, I was studying to get my own PhD, just mm-hmm. similar to you actually. And uh, I had this broker who said, can you imagine? I just got out of, I mean, I only have a high school degree and I'm making all this money. And I'm like, oh, this is sort of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. like <laughs> Yeah. Well, it is a sales job. Yeah, it is a sales it, job. It is a sales Absolutely. job. You know, fancy, fancy titles on the business card notwithstanding. Yeah. And not a totally ethical sales job, actually. Well, I, you know, I think it can be. And I um, have done some work over the last few years of my life with a couple of, of brokers. Uh, one, a woman... Uh, at UBS and a fellow at Fidelity. And I have found them to be terrific, but there are many unfortunate examples um, of people who really have their own interests um, in mind beyond their clients. And I found that a a difficult environment to, to work in. I did too. I mean, especially when the chief administrative officer said, you know, really, of course, Payne Weber is no longer here, so of course I can say this, but, you know, the real focus of the organization was greed. And, you know, you have to take a pause at that kind of a statement, which leads me to my question. Yes. Of, I mean, greed is is still alive and well in America's workplace and, frankly, probably workplaces around the world. But what got you into, from your journey, into the whole leadership aspect Well, when I started my career as a consultant, I joined a a global firm of management psychologists, and we were doing a lot of selection work 
Yeah. And I was um, doing these in-depth assessments for executive positions. And in my first six months, I was interacting with a couple of boards, boards of directors. And it occurred to me that the decisions that they made from that level were critically important. For example, um, the way you define the role of the CEO in a given organization at a given point in time with a particular strategy matters a lot. And then the process of choosing a person matters a lot. And I watched uh, different people and I thought, this person is leading as a uh, it's a part of who they are, and it's a and it's a process. They take it very seriously. And some other people really um, are managing, or they're they're engaged in a series of transactions. And they say, "Yep, did that. Check that. Check that." Um, and so I think the difference between a transactional approach and a more systemic approach. Um, I was more attracted to the systemic, and so I was drawn to working with people that are top leaders and. And that has been over 25 years. I've been able to observe people. And I thought, what is it that the good ones have in common? And that's how I came up with my book, the framework yeah. for the book. I thought, What's okay. The secret you know, look, sauce. <laughs> the secret sauce. Let's get away from all this uh, personality analysis and psychoanalysis, which people find hilarious. They're like, well, you're a psychologist. Aren't you supposed to be doing that? No. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> No, and, and, and you should stop as well, because <laughs> actually I know how to do it, but I don't yeah. find that useful. The armchair psychologist. Well, that brings us to your book, High Stakes Leadership, Leading yes. Through Crisis with Courage, Judgment and Fortitude. Great title. So let's start with the basics. What compelled you to write your new book? Well, I really wanted to present a view of leadership that I knew to be valid from my observations. So my research for the book is not like the research I did as a graduate student where, you know, I had controlled groups of people and, you know, I gave them questionnaires. It was really by observation. I wanted to offer people a framework for leadership that could be learned and taught. Um, you know, a lot of leadership books are written that cite people like Steve Jobs, who was remarkable. But I regard people like Steve Jobs as comets. They don't come around very often. And it's, mm. it's, a, it's a bit hard to learn enduring principles. I mean, he was brilliant, but he was also, uh, you know, according to his biography, you know, he could be obnoxious. He wasn't necessarily clean, um, <laughs> didn't wear shoes all the time, uh, didn't want to have a license plate on his car. He, he had a lot of behaviors that we would really call um, antisocial. Right. Uh -huh. um, he yeah, wasn't he as interested in this. That too. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. he was a great leader. Yeah. So, the rebel I mean, with a cause. If, if you watch them, yeah, if you watch the movie with Kate Winslet, you get a, get another view. And I, I appreciate that his family, you know, didn't approve of the movie and didn't think it was correct. But let's look at Steve. Let's look at um, a guy like Jack Welch, where people cite him. You know, these are guys that are leaders at a point in time. And I certainly acknowledge the, the businesses they grew, all homage to that. But most leaders aren't like that. I wanted to talk about what can you do as a leader to strengthen your ability and what can other people learn. So mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be this 
um, sort of, you know, it's in your DNA or it isn't kind of a thing because I, really that's sort of depressing and it's not useful. And I don't believe it's true. But it is true, right? So you mentioned earlier that you do a lot of work with senior leaders. Is the book going to appeal? I mean, I've read it and I loved it. But is you. it, in your mind, is your intent that it appeals to leaders at all levels within organizations? Or are you looking at that senior cadre of leaders who are making um, complex decisions? I mean, that leads to two parts. Who's the audience and high stakes? Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'll start with the second one first. High stakes, the way I define mm-hmm. high stakes is it's a situation where risk is high and visibility is low. So you have a you have a decision to make or a series of decisions to make that you cannot afford to get wrong, but you really can't see everything. And honestly, when can you? <laughs> There's always things that we wish we could know that we can't know. And in fact, pursuit of that uh, perfect amount of data gets people stuck. So, so it's the that, data to make the decision that we don't have visibility to all the moving pieces. The decision itself, whether it, well, when it goes wrong, those tend to be high visible headlines is what the implication is of high stakes versus when it goes right, it goes mm-hmm. without comment because the assumption is you made the right decision. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So high stakes, um, sorry. Yeah, so so that and I, I'm sorry, I forgot the other part of your question. The <laughs> audience. So is this just for oh, senior audience. leaders, or um, is it for leaders at all levels within organisations? It. I believe. I hope it's useful for anyone. You know, publishers hate it when they ask you who your audience is, and you say everyone. <laughs> they say no, no, right. no, no. You've got to narrow it down. Um, but I, I give examples in the book of leaders of very small organisations and very large organizations, because I want people to see that there's a way to grab a lesson uh, in different parts of the book and use it for themselves. So for example, I talk about a woman, Megan Furland, who's the CEO of the Girl Scouts of Western Washington. And she was in a very high stakes situation where she'd gotten a $100,000 donation and promptly uh, was told by the donor, that if she planned to use the um, the money to support any girl who identified as transgender, that she had to, you know, he didn't want her to do that. So she gave the money back. Wow. Now, that's, that's a woman. Crazy. Yeah. That's, that's a really woman. Right. Integrity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's courage. That mm-hmm. is courage right there. But she's running an organization with a budget under a million dollars a year. This was a lot of money to her. Yeah. And so I used examples like that because I wanted people to see that, you know, you may be leading a Boy Scout troop. You may be leading, um, you know, in my case, you know, I'm a firm, I'm a solo entrepreneur. So mm-hmm. when I look, when people say to me, well, get your IT guy to do it. I'm like, uh, well, I am the IT guy. Oh, we can relate to that. Second. And so I wanted people to appreciate that this framework could be used um, by anyone in business, and it could also be used in our personal lives as well. 
Well, Constance, great conversation so far. You're listening to the Future Proof Workplace radio show with Dr. Linda Sharkey and myself, Morag Barrett. And our guest this week is Constance Derricks, who's talking about her new book, High Stakes Leadership, Leading Through Crisis with Courage, Judgment and Fortitude. We're going to go to break, but stay with us. And when we come back, we're going to dive deeper into the framework that Constance describes in her new book. We'll be back very shortly. Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, 5 years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Hi, welcome back. I'm Linda Sharkey, and we're talking to Constance uh, Derricks. Constance, you know, in your book, you talk about a uh, framework that you came up from leaders. We were just talking about, you know, the high stakes mm-hmm. uh, decisions and, you know, that those are the ones that are really most visible and, frankly, what a lot of leaders get judged on and, um, you know, if yes. they're successful. But what 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 is the framework that you offer for people and how do they go about learning it? Because it's clear that you believe that leadership can be learned, which I also believe, by the way. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so the framework um, that I developed, and there are obviously many tentacles underneath each of these three um, aspects, are courage, courage, judgment, and fortitude. And the reason why I think all three are necessary is because any one of these on its own can take you completely off the rails. So let's say, for example, we talk about courage. Courage sounds like a good thing, right? And Brene Brown in particular has written mm-hmm. quite a bit about courage and uh, in a positive way. And I think she calls it wholeheartedness and bringing your whole self. And she she's a lovely writer and she's done a lot of great research. However, if you take courage on its own to the extreme, what you get is recklessness. Yeah. And you don't want that in business. And so you have to modulate courage with something. So that's where the judgment comes in. So judgment enables people to make decisions that are uh, that in, encompass the variables that are necessary to consider. So, for example, one would be looking at your marketplace and your strategy. Uh, judgment is the the one place that I think it's very obvious that if you think you're not in high stakes, <laughs> if you ignore those undercurrents, because you're right, Linda, it's when you think high stakes, you think visible. But sometimes these undercurrents are like riptides in a business. It could be an internal riptide, think Equifax, right? Yep. Or um, an external riptide, which is uh, Amazon um, taking up a lot of the business that Walmart may have thought that it should have had because Walmart moved more slowly to to, uh, go online. So judgment incorporates this data um, and helps to modulate courage. Um, And then the final piece is fortitude. And the reason you need fortitude is if you have courage and judgment, you, you could be a flash in the pan. Fortitude is what allows you to sustain your effort Um, on the path that you have set out. 
while being, you know, conversely modulated by judgment. Because if you start down the path and you realize, oh, we should have turned left back there. Fortitude is not force. Fortitude is not, we said we were going to do this by golly, and we're going to do it. If you get new information, judgment has to be allowed in so that you say, hmm, okay, course correction. It happens to us all. I mean, we all fail at things and we have to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off. So judgment comes back into play and then courage, because if you fail, you need courage to pick yourself back up. So that's how these three three elements um, relate to one another. One of them alone is absolutely not enough. Yeah. And one reason I wanted to write a book that talked about um, a more systemic look at leadership is I'm, I'm frankly a little sick and tired of this, uh, you know, oh, authenticity is the answer. Oh, vulnerability, you know, people. The next shiny object. That's the big, yeah. that's the big byword of today. Everybody's got resilience and curation in their conversations. And agility. <laughs> and agility. That's okay. Agility. So, yes, okay. I'm not saying any of these are bad. No, I but don't. Leadership is too important, and yeah. there's too many various variables to consider to say, okay, we'll take the red one. I mean, it, it's just, it, it's silly on the face of it. It is. You know, I love those three, um, those three pillars is what I'm going to call them. And But mm-hmm. they're difficult because some of them, how, how do you train people? First of all, how do you, tr- you get people to recognize that they may not have fortitude? Uh, or they may not be using the best judgment. Uh, and then what do you do to help them develop that kind, th- those kinds of approaches? Because I agree, they're incredibly important. For yeah, they are, they are incredibly important. And there are several ways that you um, develop those in people. One is the environment that we're in is very determinant of the behavior that we will display. So that's an, another reason why I sort of rail against this you know, psychoanalysis of people in organizations because they're in a context and the context determines behavior as much as our individual characteristics. So you have to create the right environment. If the environment has leaders who are demonstrating lack of courage, poor judgment, and no fortitude, you're done. Why would anyone else have it? Um, the other thing is that a principle for me around leadership is you must know thy people. So you have to know what your people are great at and you have to know what they need to improve upon and have ongoing conversations about both, not just, you know, you need to fix these things, but to say, look, you're really great at this. You're not so great at that. Let's get somebody else to do the thing you're not great at and focus you on what you really are great at. Sometimes that's the better course, and that takes judgment. Yeah. You know, so, Constance, a lot has been said. I mean, this sort of leads a little bit into this whole business of performance discussions and review, feedback. Assessment. You, yeah, I mean, I, I go too, and I feel. Oh, it. No, I hear, I hear the thrilling, uh, the emotion in your voice. <laughs> yes, you can. Really yeah. But you, you know, and you talked about assessment early on, and you know, and I'm familiar with those uh, assessments that that people did for leaders. I, what what is your view on on how we give people feedback that doesn't feel so weighty and assessment and diagnostic and performance yeah. discussions and all that. How, how 
how do you create that sort of environment where people can really feel that they're getting stuff that's helpful to them and that people really care right. to help them? Right, right. Well, I think that the feedback has to be focused at the intersection of what the organization needs from its people and uh, what the individual that we're thinking about uh, wants for themselves. So where those overlap. So I often say to leaders, you want to know what your people are really great at, that they love to do, that the organization needs. So when you find these places of overlap, then you can say to the person, okay, we need this and you're great at that and you love doing that. Um, So these are the things that you're doing that are helping you get where you want to go. And here's something that you need to improve upon. If you always ground the conversation in something that the person has a natural inclination toward, you're far better off. It doesn't feel arbitrary. It doesn't feel like it's your pony that you're just determined to ride. <laughs> no. And actually, there's a, there's a video on my website called The Feedback Formula. And I lay out this process. Um, and, and I came up with a video because I was talking to a CFO one day. And he said, I don't know how to give this guy this feedback. And I drew this on a little piece of paper and showed it to him. And he said, that's really good. Could you, you know, like maybe put that on a slide or something. (laughs) I said, sure. Um, And it's all grounded in um, what are our objectives. And, you know, if the person's um, talents and and desires for themselves aren't a fit, then you have to just part ways. And sometimes people just work too hard, too long, and everybody suffers too much trying to put the proverbial, you know, peg in the wrong hole. Right. Put, put it, putting lipstick on that pig. The, the question I wanted to ask you was... You were a stockbroker. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I know the type very well. Yeah. Very well. Um, what, I certainly worked in that environment. What, uh, so how do you, do you use questioning at all? Because the, the reason I'm asking you this is that I find that people are more self-aware than we give them credit for. And that we often are in telling modes rather than saying, what do you think you need in order to get to the next step or to address? And that, that given the chance, people will say more than you allow them to or typically allow them to in dialogues. I, I just love your reaction to that when mm-hmm. you're coaching. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree that um, asking, first of all, you have to make sure you're on the same page. So get get on the same page with what are we trying to do and what are you trying to do? What do you, What is it you want? Um, asking people what it is they think they need to do. But the other, the other thing that really pops the cork yeah. is when a boss says to a subordinate, what advice do you have for me? Not, do you have feedback for me? What can I do to help you? The, the questions that are, are um, sort of boss-like you know, but a boss asking a subordinate, what advice do you have for me is going to be very revealing and it's flattering for most of us to be asked for our advice. So I, I find that that changes the dynamic to ask that question. I love that. I'm moving much more into questioning than, um, than, than, you know, diagnostic. I I just think it's more powerful for people, but we are at a break. And, uh, so we're going to take a break and we're talking to Constance Derrick, um, 
and having a great conversation, Constance. I really appreciate it. And we're going to be getting more into deeper understanding of, of coaching and how you as a leader, our listeners, can take your own leadership to that next level. So thank you so much for this great dialogue, Constance, and we'll be back with you very shortly. We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people, and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future-proof your organization with the Future-Proof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, the Future-Proof Workplace is your wake-up call. Because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back. Morag, are you there? Or did I lose the connection? Ah, uh, yes, I'm here. It was the technical gremlins. There you go. Oh. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> I was talking I'm like, to oh myself. My <laughs> it was very dramatic. But there you go. So, here for a minute. Oh, it was it was amazing. But it was interesting because the question I was going to say, so I was welcoming our listeners back and saying thank you for being with us. We're with Constance Derricks and we're talking about her book, High Stakes Leadership, Leading Through Crisis with Courage, Judgment and Fortitude. And before we went to break, you were talking there about leaders who ask for input from those around them. And I think one of the myths of leadership that certainly Linda and I come across in our client engagements is that myth that leadership is a solo sport, that I need to be the smartest person in the room, that because I've reached this level, there is an expectation that I know the answers. And Mm -hmm. that can ultimately result in silos, politics, turf wars, but also wrong decisions and a lack of resiliency. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, Constance, what other myths of leadership and business do you come across that get in the way of being a successful high stakes leader? Ooh, great question, Morag. I love it. <laughs> um, I think one of the myths that, that I come across most commonly is the myth that um, I have to, uh, so I'm speaking as if I'm a leader now, that I have to um, know either how to do everything or to trust my instincts enough that I can figure out how to do everything without um, it, making an investment in my own learning and getting advice myself. So for example, some of my work is in mergers and acquisitions, which is, you know, it's a minefield. Most deals don't deliver the value that the investment thesis declares that they will. There's lots of reasons for that. Um, and yet, you know, I hear people, uh, say, Oh, I know how I'm, I'm good at deals. I've done three. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Full sense of security and causality. Right. I've done it before. I can do it again. Right. It's an overgeneralization from a few specifics. So it, you know, if you're trained in science, you know that that's that's a foolish thing um, to do. But the I guess the myth that underlies that is the myth that if you uh, show up as someone who's learning that that's a bad thing. And what I tell leaders, especially when they're new in a role, I say, not only do you need to learn, you need to learn in front of people. You need to have some of the learning happen with an audience because what you're doing when you do that is you're modeling for everyone else 
this is what we do around here. And if you yeah. want innovation in your, in your company and who doesn't, you have to be learning. It's to me, it's the most important thing for a leader to be doing. It's interesting because as I listen to you, there's two adages that come to mind. Number one, that it's easy to be a great leader on the good days when things are going to plan. And therefore, the concepts that you share in your book are even more important when things are starting to hit the fan or your high stakes when there are many options and no one right answer and, and so forth. But actually, I was just suddenly thinking there's a counterpoint to that, that whilst it's easy to be a good leader on the good days, I also think that that's a time of extreme vulnerability and high stakes in its own right, because maybe we don't see the iceberg or we don't see the risk in those calm waters. Can you talk more to that? Absolutely. I think success can breed complacency. Very easily, um, because when you when you're successful, it's a very rewarding feeling for most of us. I mean, I'm not turning down any success that, that I have had in the past or that I hope to have in the future. And yet, when we have an unconscious belief that the success was all caused by the decisions we made, we get we can get arrogant. And in fact, one of the people who reviewed my book and whose whose endorsement is on the cover, said that one of the things the book showed him when he read it was that a lot of leaders operate as though they think they're in some safe zone, and that's the highest stakes of all. So that's exactly your point, Warag, and and well said. Yeah. And it's that courage to also look candidly inward and listen to the outward voice, but also that courage to actually develop and coach that next generation of leaders, share the learning, share the insights, but hold yourself accountable for when decisions are made that don't go to plan versus Tefloning off and saying, well, that's because I involved so-and-so. And and if I hadn't have done that, if it had just been me, we'd have been okay. That old, I got you, I told you so, that uh, gets played very often, doesn't it? Well, if you think about the Equifax situation, which um, I... Yeah, I wrote an article in Chief Executive Magazine. It ran about three weeks ago on the situation. And uh, when the former CEO, I think Richard Smith is his name, was um, testifying in Washington, he said, oh, it was this guy that didn't do the patch. Right. And And I thought, why would you admit that in public? Because what you admitted was, we have such bad internal processes that we had a weakness that relied on one human being. That's just, that's just silly. Um, You know, and the other, on the opposite side of a crisis, you know, I write in the book about what are, what are some of the advantages of being in a crisis? Being in a crisis is very clarifying. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing like a crisis to clear the smoke. Um, And (laughs) a few years ago when uh, the Home Depot had a hack of their, IT system, their CEO at the time was Frank Blake, a a really justly admired um, leader. He did exactly what people should do. He didn't do the Teflon thing. He wasn't looking for someone to blame. Uh, He stood up and said, this happened and we're sorry and we're going to protect all of our customers. And a few days later, he issued another um, letter, I guess, a public letter and it was blissfully free of attempts to blame or some mealy mouth. You know, it wasn't like a PR campaign. It was a genuine, we're sorry, 
this mm-hmm. shouldn't have oh, happened. And, yes. And, and so he is my, you know, he's my star <laughs> for yes. someone says, who's done a good job in a crisis? I say, Frank Blake, people are going to get sick of me hearing this, but he deserves it. He did it. Most 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 Constantly. Have weekly, um, sorry, Linda, you go. Thanks, Morag. He's a poster child for what I would, for what you're calling fortitude. You know, having that intestinal fortitude to kind of come forward and say, "This is, this is, uh, uh, you know, who we are. This is what happened," and taking the responsibility and the accountability for it. And unfortunately, today, we do not have enough leaders out there in the public eye. And, you know, who young people are seeing that are willing to do that. They're more willing right. to put the finger. And that's that's the sadness. That's the context that we see around us, which is really unfortunate. I was going to build on that. And I agree, I, Linda. The weekly headlines we're seeing at the moment of the finger oh, pointing yeah. and blame as every new organization and every new scandal seems to be hitting the news. And we yeah. aren't seeing the role models for those who can comment on others' misfortune or comment on their own in a way that actually builds confidence, um, courage, judgment that we want to continue doing business with these organizations, but in fact, further erode and destroy it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you think about um, think about the BP oil uh, mess in the Gulf of Mexico, the leak, and yep. and if I ask you, what do you most remember the CEO saying? He wants his life back. Yes, it, you know what? Uh, I yeah, was giving so a spe- I was giving yeah. a speech a month ago, and I said to the audience, "What is what did Tony Hayward say in the you know blah blah blah?" And the audience almost in unison shouted. I just want my life back. I mean, yeah. that is that is the most. Now, presumably, the man was exhausted and frazzled and horrified and mm-hmm. all of that. But there is very little excuse for him saying that. That uh, no empathy, no empathy. No. There were lives lost. Right. Uh, just yeah. So uh, you know. So if you compare Tony Hayward to Frank Blake, you'll you. There you go. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think that's such a good analogy because we have so many examples of people who flame out because because they're willing. It's easy to point the finger at somebody else, yes. and it's very easy to find the flaws in what other people are doing. And no change has happened without mistakes. And it's a lot harder for people to stand up and say, "Yes, I I made the mistake. I'm I'm responsible for this, and here's what we're going to do about it. Here's what we're ch- will we make mistakes again? Yes, we probably will. Sure." But that sure. that is the test of a real leader, and yes. I, I I think that there's a character element in there. Now, you're a student of all this stuff, so you've you've studied this yourself, and mm-hmm. uh, you, you know we've moved away from character as an aspect of leadership. But there is, in my mind, an element of character. Yes, and yes, and I talk about that in the book. Yeah, that um, that uh, I talk about a number of things in the book, but. If you are a person of poor character, I, my saying is you need to have character, not be one. Yes. Um, that if you don't have character, this foundational piece that in my role as a leader, I'm serving the interests of a business, of shareholders, of employees, of communities, of, of you know, providers and, and, quote, vendors. If I don't understand this and want to serve that, that's a problem because it's going to lead me to be very self-protective and not admit 
the mistakes that are that are inevitable in all of our um, businesses. Go back to the Tylenol disaster. Right. Remember that when the Tylenol tablets were poisoned, that yeah. company did not evade that issue one bit. In fact, they took probably far more dramatic action than they technically needed to. But we remember them well for it. You know, we we respect that. Yeah, and that's yeah. a universal. Yeah, it's really it's it's uh, it's it's fascinating. I you know that that whole notion of character, and you know, in our book, we which I'm, you know we love your book and we love our book too, but of course, a perspective so. of um, of values and really really digging deep down to understand what your values really are and then really examining yourself because the only tool of leadership that you really have is yourself. And if you're making decisions, no matter how much you want to put quote unquote lipstick on that pig, if you're making decisions simply by the bottom line, you are not living your values unless you're willing to profess that that is what most motivates me, period. Right. And, you know, that's why we have all these platitudes around because people, you know, love to talk about all these great things, which is their hopes and dreams, not really what they are. And so the other thing about leadership in my mind, and I'd like to hear your comment, is you got to face reality where it is. And if you can't yes. really look into the mirror and face that reality, you're never going to be that leadership with that leader with courage who really right. loves your values. So I'd, and, I'd love your reaction right. to that. And you're right, exactly. You won't be admired and respected. So one of the people that I think does a beautiful job of this is Warren Buffett. And, yeah. and I, I'm a, actually um, a holder of Berkshire Hathaway B shares. And so I get the annual report and they have it on their website. It's no secret. But I never, I never observed something um, until Bob Cialdini pointed this out to me. And Bob Cialdini is the world's leading expert on influence. He's professor of emeritus at Arizona State and has done amazing research on influence. And Bob pointed this out to me and he said, what Warren does is in the beginning of his shareholders letter, he always talks about the mistakes first. He's, he's, dear shareholders, let me tell you what we did wrong. Let me tell you, you know, not that bluntly, but what, but what Bob told me is in his language, he said he is giving people access to a laudable trait. And when you, when you give people access to a laudable trait, which is standing up and saying, I made a mistake, being honest, being forthright, um, that your credibility rises. Oh, absolutely. And it, yeah, isn't that? It, and it's counterintuitive, by the way. The re, all the research out there supports the fact that the, the second that you do that, yeah. your trust factor and belief factor goes up exponentially. But we're exactly. not wired to do that. We're wired to protect ourselves. It's so interesting. Exactly. But I love the way Bob Cialdini said it because yeah. he's saying he, he's saying Warren Buffett has this laudable trait of he has terrific character. I mean, who would say otherwise? But he, what, what Bob is saying is he's allowing his reader and his audience access to it intentionally. Um, and I think that's, that's a really important thing to, uh, to keep in mind. And I, I really hadn't thought of it quite, quite that way. It kind of goes along with what I tell people about their brand uh, for their company. You know, the saying is, if you build it, they will come. And it's not true. No. You have to build it and then tell them you built it. 
and then <laughs> they will I want come. To come. Well, and yeah, and, <laughs> and that's that's what Bob is saying about Warren. He's saying, "Look, I I've done this, and I'm going to tell you about it." Yeah, and it's I mean, I love I love Warren Buffett. <laughs> So, Constance, we've had a fabulous conversation with you and we're coming to the uh, close of the show. So what's the one nugget, the one nugget you're hoping people will take away? Well, I think that um, the most important thing for leaders to do is to be students, to be learners, continuous learners, learners about their business, about the marketplace. And, of course, from my perspective, the learning I love them to do is about themselves and that means observing your own thinking process and decision-making style and being mature enough to allow um, other people's views to come in. Thank and, you. Yeah, you're welcome. That's great, Constance. Thank you so much for being with us. That's, it's just been a pleasure to meet you uh, over this radio show, and I hope we do stay in touch. And people need to get your book, and how do they get in touch with you? And if they haven't watched your book, they need to do it <laughs> Yes, go to Amazon.com right now <laughs> and type in high stakes leadership. Um, that's uh, probably a, a very quick way to get it. You can go to your local bookstore and if they don't have it, you can ask them why the, why the heck they don't and they can order it for you. Um, and people can find me. Um, my website is cdconsultinggroup.com. And uh, I have a lot of free resources on my website that I hope your readers would find value in, including the one I mentioned, which is the feedback formula. It's a very short video, and it gives people a model of how to give feedback that's more likely to land. Love it. Thank you again, Constance. Thank you for being on our show. We really greatly appreciate it. And Morag, as always, it's wonderful to share Thursdays uh, <laughs> with you. Sure, Thursday afternoon, talking about our favorite subject, our book, and uh, leadership. Thanks, Linda. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Morag. It was a pleasure. This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.